When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I'm James Crepia, the Ducks beat reporter for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. On this edition of the podcast, we'll go over the decision and the big news of the day, of the week, uh, arguably of the year. Uh, the biggest news since the postponement of Pac-12 sports, and that is the return of Pac-12 sports, specifically Pac-12 football this fall, and the start of Pac-12 men's and women's basketball on November the 25th, which is on time, uh, albeit delayed compared to usual, but on time compared to the rest of the NCAA. We'll get to the basketball bit. Second, we'll deal with football primarily and what the Ducks might look like this fall. Before we get into the future and what things may look like in the weeks and months ahead for Oregon, obviously we have to go a little bit back in the past. I don't want to belabor the point and bury the lead too deeply. Certainly myself, John Canzano, Ken Go, and Nick Daschle from the Oregonian and Oregon Live have written extensively about the Pac-12's return, the process, a lot that has gone into it, uh, and whether things were expedited, whether things were dealt with as fast as possible, whether things were delayed unnecessarily by the Pac-12, by Governor Brown, by the Oregon Health Authority, by county public health officials, you name it. We covered the gamut over the course of the last couple of weeks in particular, really the last eight to ten days specifically, uh, as things really got into gear across the footprint of the Pac-12. Obviously, going back to last week, the Big Ten making its decision to resume sports and resume the football season uh, starting on October the 23rd and 24th, and then the just frenzy that took place in the day thereafter and the days thereafter uh, in the Pac-12 from uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom addressing uh, the situation there and the health uh, department restrictions there regarding uh, cohort sizes and how many players could practice at one time and why that doesn't exactly stand in the way of the California schools practicing or playing football in the fall, though obviously there's been some adjustments since. Then by the end of the day, Los Angeles County, Public health officials coming to an agreement with uh, the athletic directors at UCLA and USC, Martin Germain and Mike Bowen, respectively, uh, to allow for those teams to return to practice and play uh, in the near future. Then the following day, uh, again, Nick Daschle reporting uh, from Benton County that Oregon State had gotten the go-ahead from public health officials there. Uh, myself reaching out to Lane County 
and uh, getting comment from them that public health officials who had worked with the University of Oregon, uh, Dr. Ludke, uh, who is involved with Lane County Public Health and is the lead uh, representative there, has been working with the University of Oregon as a school, as an athletic department, as everything, uh, and is on the PAC-12's medical advisory committee uh, in an advisory role uh, representing the University of Oregon uh, in that regard. Uh, they have signed off as well. And then obviously also word from Governor Brown's office and the Oregon Health Authority in the joint statement that they had issued an exemption uh, pending approval of uh, written plans and protocols from the PAC-12. That was all last week. Then we got to the meeting from PAC-12 presidents and chancellors last Friday, which would have been the 18th. And going into it, there was a degree of optimism that there might have been a vote. And then, of course, there wasn't. Uh, there was some optimism, but even Larry Scott had said he wasn't expecting one and he wasn't going to necessarily push for one. There was hope that there might have been one. There wasn't. Then we hear there was a meeting then going to be scheduled six days later. I realized over this past weekend, as fans heard that uh, and tried to make hide and hair of it in terms of why was it going to take another six days, they're watching college football be played yet again on a Saturday where the Big Ten schedule is unveiled over the course of you know an hour or so, and still no word about the Pac-12. Uh, definitively speaking, word about a potential start date of October the 31st on November the 7th, and then you hear the Mountain West might be talking about coming back even earlier. So naturally, frustration from all corners from a fan standpoint uh, and trying to understand what the holdup was and why things were going to take more time. And again, we've reported on this and written about this uh, extensively. Some of it is understandable. Some of it is still a bit murky, to be honest. But nevertheless, we get to yesterday's decision, and the Pac-12 announces that it will return and have football season return. Uh, In the course of a day, by the way, that earlier in the day, (laughs) yesterday on Thursday, uh, Boulder County, Colorado, announcing that there is going to be borderline lockdown level of protocols in place for people aged 18 to 22 due to a a spike doesn't even really encapsulate the situation on the ground there uh, in Boulder County, Colorado, for the University of Colorado in that community in terms of positive tests and new cases and the like uh, for COVID. It's obviously a situation that is uh, worth noting, worth monitoring, and uh, something that they are trying to get their hands around as fast as possible, uh, and they don't want it to get even further out of control, but it's been a situation that has got increasingly worse over the last two weeks. That's the news of the morning. By the afternoon, yes, the Pac-12 presidents and chancellors uh, agreeing to and voting unanimously to resume football in the fall and, again, have basketball and the winter sports season start as scheduled, uh, at least in terms of what the NCAA schedule is with the November 25th start, which is two weeks later than usual. They still have to hash out exactly on the basketball front what the schedule might be. But for football, a start that will begin on November the 6th, which, of course, the Saturday is November the 7th. So, yes, that's later than... Basically, everybody else that's later than the Power Five conferences, that's later than even the Mountain West, which Thursday night announced that it too would be coming back with the intent of beginning on October the 24th, pending approval from state, county, local public health officials for each of its schools. And there are still some hurdles there for the Mountain West schools. 
But nevertheless, they announce on the same day the Pac-12 says November the 6th and November the 7th, the Mountain West announces October the 24th. And we've heard this for the past week. Uh, Bruce Feldman was the first to report that last Saturday. I confirmed it uh, shortly thereafter uh, regarding the Mountain West. And numerous people have uh, certainly later that day and over the course of the week in terms of the ins and outs and the vote that was going to come and it did and the like. That's the process. That's more or less catching up with, in case you've uh, been a little bit tuned out, as I certainly can understand some people were after the August 11th decision by the Pac-12 to postpone sports, that many Pac-12 fans, especially casual fans, did tune out of it. And I, I understand that. I respect that because you're told that sports isn't going to be, you know, college sports isn't going to be on the agenda for several months. Uh, so I get that people, for some folks who did do that, that said, I also understand that over the last 10 days or so, there are a lot of Pac-12 fans who were increasingly uh, upset and frustrated and angry even about the fact that the league was behind. The league was behind and they weren't seeing uh, enough urgency. On one hand, they saw quite a bit of urgency on one day uh, when the Big Ten made its announcement and a lot of movement on the ground from governor's offices and health authorities and, again, public, you know, county public health authorities, state public health authorities. But there was still ambiguity in terms of exactly why things were not going as quickly as we all wish they would have. And there was some clarity provided to that yesterday during the course of a video conference with Larry Scott and Oregon President Michael Schill, who's the chair of the presidents and chancellors right now for the Pac-12. Uh, Ray Anderson, the athletic director from Arizona State, and Doc, uh, Dr. Doug Ackerman of Oregon State, who were on the call for the uh, Pac-12 and uh, going over the decision yesterday. Some clarity provided, but ultimately, no matter what they were going to say, no matter what the explanation was, it will still not sit well with fans. It will still not sit well with a lot of folks that regardless of what the rationalization regardless of, well, we didn't want to uh, necessarily uh, address something that we didn't have until we had testing in place, daily testing in place. There really wasn't a conversation to be had regarding uh, lifting of additional restrictions because there was no way to lift those restrictions without the availability of daily testing. Until testing was available, there was no conversation to be had. I can understand that perspective to a degree. Having said that, that daily testing was lined up by the Pac-12 before anybody, daily antigen testing we're talking about, from the Quidel deal that was announced on September 3rd. And on one hand, credit to Larry Scott for procuring that and securing that faster than any other conference from a daily testing availability standpoint. Other conferences had worked with Quidel. Other conferences had antigen testing available. And, he, and again, certainly the Pac-12 had PCR testing available earlier in the summer. But for daily testing purposes, it was the first conference to do that. On the other hand, that announcement came on September the 3rd and was very much celebrated on September 3rd and September 4th. But again, I understand fans' frustration that you say, all right, well, that happened on the 3rd and the 4th, so then where was the discussion in terms of trying to hit things into overdrive and expedite everything so that you could resume that much faster? And again... Not a lot of clarity there, some context, but not a ton of clarity. And no matter what you were going to hear, you weren't going to be satisfied because as fans, you heard daily testing was available. You know the decision was reached. You want to know why it couldn't have been reached sooner. And there is no changing the fact that it wasn't. 
So, alas, you are left with the return of Pac-12 football, which as a Pac-12 football fan, presumably a Ducks fan if you're listening to this podcast, you should be very happy about. That said, you're disappointed that it's not a eight-game season or a nine-game season or a ten-game season that you could have been seeing like you're going to see from the SEC, which starts this weekend, like you're going to see from the Big Ten, yes, albeit a couple of weeks later, on October the 24th. And you're instead going to be looking at a six-game, quote-unquote, regular season with a potential Pac-12 championship, or even if not in the championship game, an additional game on that weekend. Uh, same thing that the Big Ten is doing in order to get another game in for everybody. Everyone will play on championship weekend regardless of whether or not they're in the title game. It will be obviously the two division winners playing for the Pac-12 championship, then the second-place teams, third-place teams, all the way down to the sixth-place teams playing each other in other games that weekend. So on one hand, again, good news and a positive development. On the other, certainly I can understand a lot of fans who are still frustrated with the process. And no matter what you're provided by way of answers or clarity or uh, context, Nothing is going to satisfy you in terms of, hey, wait a minute, why, if, if it was, whether it be state health authorities or county public health authorities or what have you, why weren't these conversations had earlier and hashed out specifically earlier so that when the answers did arrive, when the daily testing was procured, that then you didn't have to start at square one, that you were already on third base and just saying, all right, here it is. We've got this, and let's get this done, and let's get this done now. Now, again, you get some additional context from a USC athletic director, Mike Bowen, who I mentioned before, mentioning last night that he feels that the public letter uh, from USC's football players to get, uh, Governor Newsom in California was a factor in this. And you could say, well, of course, an athletic director is going to say something like that, but why does he say that? And he added some clarity there in terms of why he believes that, because he said and felt that it was because, in part, the governor's office wasn't communicating with the conference. So why did he think his players had an impact, according to Mike Bowen? And again, we hope to get more clarity in this in the days ahead. But according to Mike Bowen, it's because they weren't communicating and by they, I mean the governor's office was not communicating. When the governor is not having a direct conversation with the conference commissioner prior to that, I think that's an indication. That's the quote from Mike Bowen last night, according to reporters who were speaking to him in Los Angeles. So if you take that at face value and say, well, was Larry Scott attempting to reach out and not getting anywhere? And again, certainly you understand that whether it be Governor Newsom in California or Governor Brown in Oregon, there was certainly a lot going on, particularly this month in particular with wildfires in both these states. There was certainly still the pandemic raging uh, and a lot else going on on the respective plates for these governors. But that said, when a major entity like an athletic conference that includes some of the flagship universities in these states is trying to resume business operations at any point throughout all of this and saying that the governor is not having direct conversation with Larry Scott. Maybe his office was, maybe an underling was, be that as it may. When that conversation isn't happening or isn't happening very much at all, that, you know, 
is it Mike Bowen shifting the blame, which he can afford to do since he's a private school <laughs> at a private school, or is that Mike Bowen providing cover for Larry Scott? Yeah, hopefully we get clarity on that in the days ahead. But that is a bit of the context, and that is a bit of the process. Didn't want to spend too much of the podcast on that, but we were able to give you a little bit. We don't want to you know glaze over it either. Now to moving forward in terms of what it means going forward for the Ducks this fall. You're looking at a short season and a shorter season compared to everybody else on paper. On paper. It, is, it does need to be said and reiterated to folks. I understand the frustration for everybody that you're going to see the SEC open on Saturday on a weekend that was supposed to be the opening weekend under the revised schedule for the Pac-12, and you're going to sit there and yell at the television while you're watching it, uh, and that you're saying the Pac-12 could have, would have, should have been playing at this time. Be that as it may, we are where we are, and while it certainly looks like the SEC is going to have all of its games played on Saturday, we have no way of knowing what level of disruption there is going to continue to be across college football this fall. We've seen it already, and it has been substantial. We were not talking about the rare one or two games a weekend right now, unfortunately. There have been, through the first three weekends of college football, and really, if you want to bring it back to what was supposed to be week zero, week zero didn't happen in late August on the 29th. So on the first three Saturdays of September, we have seen substantial volumes of disruptions of game postponements or outright cancellations. Now, yeah, a good number of them have been in non-conference play. No, nobody who has played so far has had daily antigen testing available. They've had, from all reports, it sounded like at least two, if not for the most part, three times a week testing. Some of the postponements and cancellations due to contact tracing and players being held out due to that, maybe not even due to positive tests which again, in part because you're not testing on a daily basis. Now, everybody's in overdrive across the country to try and acquire rapid antigen testing, uh, and then that's also backed up by PCR testing on a weekly basis. Additionally, and if you test positive on an antigen test, you're then tested again on a PCR test because the uh, technology involved and the, the thresholds by which somebody can test positive and et cetera, et cetera. I'm not a doctor. We'll, you know, we'll let somebody else speak into all the details on that. But the bottom line is we've seen a high volume of disruption of games. So while you may be disappointed and say, well, the Pac-12 is only going to play six or seven games, and are they really viable as a potential playoff team? And we're going to keep it to the Ducks for the purposes of this conversation, but anybody in the Pac-12, are they viable as a potential playoff team this year? When you're only playing seven games, including, again, whoever wins the conference and the conference title game, seven games at the most, is that viable? That's a perfectly valid standpoint, but that is all based on and predicated on the assumption that all the conferences who are scheduled to play more games, whether that be the Big Ten, the SEC, the ACC, the Mountain West, you name it, and potentially the MAC later today, that they actually play all those games. And we've seen so far that has not happened almost universally across the book. I mean, almost universally in terms of every school. So many schools have been impacted by this already, and the number is only going to continue to grow, obviously, unfortunately. Now you hope, the hope for not just the Pac-12, but also the Big Ten, since they're acquiring daily antigen testing. And then select schools have done it. Alabama's mentioned that it's had it in place as well. And again, it's, it 
probably is well on its way to the SEC in the not-too-distant future and hopefully everywhere in the not-too-distant future. But the hope with daily antigen testing is that it lowers the level of infectiousness because you are testing everybody every single day. And even if the test itself is not 100% accurate, that because you can retest that much quicker and you can retest with PCR testing to get an even higher threshold for accuracy, that you can root out and catch cases earlier, that you could prevent spread from occurring even if it only occurs for a day or two that you root it out and stop it immediately. And that obviously the burden on contact tracing is cut down significantly because you don't need to rewind the clock and go through somebody's last 48, 72, 96 plus hours in order to figure out what happened and all the various contacts they had. If you're testing them every single day, you only have to go back 24 hours or maybe even less. So, those are all the good news from the standpoint of the structure that's being put in place to foster a shorter season. So why should you be confident in the Pac-12's plans for its short season and that seven games will actually be played? That's why you should be confident in it. Why you shouldn't necessarily be disappointed with the lower number by comparison to the other conferences and that it's automatically going to preclude the Pac-12 from having a team in the playoff that is all predicated on the assumption that these other games are played. And like I say, right now, it's on paper. And while on one hand, as a sports fan, you don't want to see games get canceled or disrupted or uh, postponed. We are not ignorant to the fact that it's already happened. It will continue to happen until and unless everybody has daily testing available. And whether it be antigen testing or any daily testing available widespread across the country for every single program. So that way people can avoid this. But until that happens, and again, I, I hope it happens tomorrow. I hope it happens today. I hope it's an hour from now. But hope is not a business plan. And we've seen already just a very, very high number of games get postponed and get canceled. That's the reality. So the Pac-12 has the lowest. I get fans' frustration with that. But it's only two less than the Big Ten. And that's assuming that the Big Ten, when they start on October 23rd, and 24th, that they don't have issues of their own. And the Big 12 has 10 games over 13 weeks, and they've had a lot of disruption. The ACC has 11 games over 13 weeks. They've had significant disruption. Look at teams like Notre Dame even joining the mix. Uh, I'm trying to forget now. Uh, Virginia Tech with multiple games uh, postponed and having to get reconfigured. Virginia as well. Again, the SEC has 10 games in 12 weeks with – uh, a midweek, a midweek, a midseason buy uh, for everybody in the league, and then an end of season buy as a universal open date for any postponements. And again, you hope that none of these teams and none of these leagues have to push themselves to the nth degree in order to accommodate it. But this is where we find ourselves. Now, of course, the other argument is well, regardless of all of that, Everybody has adjusted their schedules. Everybody has cut down on games in terms of the gross number. Uh, and then some have either added conference games or less conference games, depending on which league we're talking about here. But everybody's adjusted their schedules. Everybody's moved back the start of the season to some degree. Shouldn't the Bulls and shouldn't the college football playoff also do that? Because ultimately the thread that everyone is – the the needle everyone's trying to thread here – is in order to fit in as many games as possible for the championship weekend on December 18th and 19th, for Selection Sunday on the 20th of December, so that 
The semifinals can be played at the Rose Bowl and the Sugar Bowl on January 1st and a national championship on January 11th. Well, go back much earlier in the spring and summer, and there was some conversation about potential movement there. But that hasn't happened. And at this point, it's not going to. All of a sudden, if it does, can the Pac-12 rejoin the conversation in terms of adding games? Sure. But why would they at this point? And by they, I mean, why would the playoff of the Bulls accommodate that at this point? And when are you going to move back championship games to if it's not to be played on the 18th and 19th of December? You're certainly not going to play it on Christmas Day or the day after. I mean, these are days that are basically locked up by the NFL at this point. So if you're going to delay in order to accommodate more games, where are you delaying to? That's the predicament that everyone's in right now. So at this point, you're looking at a seven-game season in seven weeks. That is obviously a very tight window. There is no room for error here at all in terms of rescheduling. And you hope that rescheduling doesn't become a thing because antigen testing is an answer and the answer to helping avoid it. So what does the schedule look like for the Ducks in particular? Well, we know that the North Division will be five of the games. So that means uh, going on the rotation as we all knew it and the schedule that we knew it to be twice over now for the fall, the original schedule and even the revised schedule. That still means that Oregon will host Washington, that it will travel to Pullman. That means that it will travel to Oregon State. That means that Oregon will go down to the Bay Area to play at Berkeley and that it will host Stanford. And then as for the sixth regular season game, uh, that will be a South Division crossover and that will be a home game. Who that opponent will be, we will find out in the days ahead. Of course, we know that you know before the opponents were the two Arizona schools, Colorado and USC. I have no idea if it will be one of those four. Logic would dictate that it would probably be one of those four, uh, or potentially, yes, I know Utah was added at one point when they did the 10-game schedule. But anything is possible at this point. They're rewriting everything. I would think they don't want to have to reinvent the wheel to the nth degree, uh, so presumably you would think uh, that Oregon will probably end up playing one of its original four crossover opponents from the South at home. But which one of those, and I haven't gone through every South Division team in terms of their various uh, South Divisional rotations and then who has the, who has three South Division home games. So then, therefore, who has to go on the road? Uh, half the division would, half the division would not. So it would be down to three teams who would be playing on the road. And remember, originally... The Colorado game was supposed to be played at Colorado. Then when they added Utah on the revised schedule, then it flipped. So realistically, Colorado is probably out if you stick to the normal rotation. I say probably, probably. On the Arizona schools, Arizona State would be the team that was supposed to travel to Oregon. And then it was supposed to be a trip to the desert. That at the moment, uh, you know, again, we're going on, on logic here, which I realize is a scary thing to do in the uh, world that we live in at the moment. Logic would dictate that Colorado and probably Arizona are unlikely. That leaves Arizona State and a potential trip from the Sun Devils up to Otson as a possibility, and the other is USC. 
Now, if you're a Ducks fan and you, but the bottom line is you want to know how do they get to the playoff and what's the best chances of getting to the playoff under this circumstance, under one division crossover during the regular season and then whoever else it would be for a conference championship. If you're going to be playing for the playoff, it's got to be for the conference championship. Well, then, yeah, then you want Arizona State in the regular season and then you want you a undefeated SC in the conference championship game. That's what you would desire if you're a Ducks fan looking for the Ducks to have the best chance possible. A 7-0 and run and a Pac-12 title in order to qualify for the playoff and have the best chance of qualifying for the playoff. The best two teams in the South on paper heading into the season, without question, are USC and Arizona State. I know Utah won the division last year and that was the title game last year, but that team lost a lot of talent on defense. They have a new quarterback and a grad transfer in Jake Bentley from South Carolina. They have a new running back. They don't have a great receiving core. And again, they lost a ton of talent on that defense from the linebacker core, from the secondary, from the defensive line in particular, every level of it, particularly on the, but I would say especially in the front seven and really the couple of top end talent in the secondary as well. That's a lot to have to replace. And remember, they weren't originally scheduled to play. Utah was added under the 10 game schedule. So, of the two options that if we're going by the original schedule, if we're going by even the revised schedule in terms of who from the South Division was supposed to play at Otson and therefore who would be the most likely to do so under this shortened season schedule, it would appear to be Arizona State and SC. So either way, you would hope for one of the two during the course of the six-game regular season and then the other to be the division champion undefeated. And if you if you believe that SC is the better chance of going undefeated and winning the South, well, then you want to play Arizona State during the regular season, and you hope that their only loss <laughs> beyond the loss to Oregon would be to SC and that they would be a two-loss team and would be 4-2, and two, and then you hope they win and beat whoever they play from the North on championship weekend and go 5-2. and two. And them's the breaks. But you're hoping for an undefeated South Division champ, and you're hoping that whoever else you play, that not only they lose to you, but that they lose to whoever wins the South. So one way or another. And if you want Arizona State to be that team to win the South, well, then you need SC uh, to be a 4-2 and two team uh, in a short season and then 5-2 and two with whoever they would play on championship weekend. Lastly, we'll wrap up the podcast with, uh, in terms of personnel, I reported late last night, and again, I'm sure for most of you checking out the story this morning on OregonLive.com after speaking to a couple of sources with knowledge of Penny Sewell's thinking that there has been no discussion of the uh, unanimous All-American and reigning Outland Trophy winner returning to Oregon at this point. I can only imagine that that would have been something that would have come up sometime over the last couple of weeks as the Pac-12 has been discussing this, particularly over the last week since the Pac-12 has been discussing it. If it hasn't been discussed to date, not to say that it's impossible, not to say that a phone call can't be had or made, but with somebody whose draft stock is as high as it is, and since Mario Cristobal's prior statements had already indicated that if somebody is in that position, if a player is in that spot, you you do right by them and you wish them the best, and by no means uh, is there any uh, trepidation about their ability to move on and pursue things on a professional level. So... With that said, Oregon obviously has a quarterback competition on its hands. It has the best returning running back 
in the Pac-12 and C.J. Verdell. It has a talented receiver core with the number three returning receiver in the conference in terms of yardage from last year and being Johnny Johnson III. Micah Pittman coming back and a whole bunch of other young pieces joining that group, probably the deepest tight end group in the league, and an overhauling offensive line that now includes an additional replacement. And while we knew Stephen Jones was going to start, and we addressed this before when we talked about Penesul opting out and declaring for the draft, now the question is, if Jones moves to the left side, well, then who takes over on the right side? And if Jones stays on the right side, then who is the new left tackle for the Oregon Ducks? We will find that out in the days and weeks ahead. I uh, we'll hope to get some context from Mario Cristobal on that topic uh, in particular later here on this Friday, and certainly we'll be chronicling lots uh, in regard to that. That basically covers the major storylines in terms of personnel on the offensive side. On the defensive side, obviously we know that replacing Troy Dye is going to be uh, a challenge and will be a big part of what the defense has to do in reconfiguring itself personnel-wise. But the defensive line looks to be obviously in a very, very good place, especially when you have a player like a Kayvon Thibodeau coming back in the first place. It looks like both defensive tackles, Jordan Scott and Austin Fallu indicating that, uh, especially Fallu indicating he's absolutely going to be back. Uh, Scott is back in Eugene, so we'll wait official word there, but it's certainly a good indicator of what he intends to do in terms of this fall. Then the question is about the secondary. Uh, there's certainly candidates of the linebacker core, especially when you have a couple of five-star freshmen uh, joining that group. But the question moves to the secondary where we haven't heard from Javon Holland yet and don't know what his plans are. And obviously Thomas uh, Graham Jr. and the Amador Lenore uh, electing to declare for the draft previously, uh, shortly after Panay Sewell did. We don't know yet in terms of what they intend to do. Could they potentially reverse course in return? Not sure. It's unclear. I, I tried reaching out to both players. They did not respond. Uh, Oregon would not confirm for me one way or another as to whether or not they even signed the opt-out document. Panay at least used the term opt-out, but you, it's become all-encompassing now. <laughs> and you don't have to sign the opt-out form, particularly if you're declaring for the draft and you sign with an agent. It's kind of a moot point. Um, there's really not much incentive. And given that the fall quarter was not beginning until next week, there really wasn't an incentive for any of these players to sign the document, whether they were declaring for the draft or not. There wasn't a particular urgency to have to do that yet. Whether they have already, when we're talking about the three players who declare for the draft, or we talk about anybody else uh, who was considering it, not necessarily a lot of motivation to have to do that yet. Like I say, there wasn't anything from an academic standpoint um, that would have been a hindrance uh, when it comes to, even if they were taking classes in the summer, okay, but you didn't have to opt out of anything once uh, the Pac-12 made the decision in early August uh, to postpone. So be that as it may, we'll see what those defensive backs do, uh, what those two outside corners do. If they choose to come back, well, then all of them come back, including, again, Javon Holland, who we haven't heard from at all one way or another yet. But if everybody's back, it's one of the most talented secondaries, probably the most talented secondary in the entire country. If Graham and Lenore stay in the draft process and do not choose to return and play this fall, well, then Oregon is still well-stocked at the outside corner position uh, with Michael Wright and DJ James in particular uh, and has other players you know, waiting in the wings to take over and be further down the depth chart as well. So they have some depth. Uh, I realize certainly losing players the caliber of Graham and Lenore, which was going to happen after this season regardless, but if it ends up happening earlier – 
as a fan, I'm sure that's obviously a bit disappointing. On the other hand, if they choose to turn around and come back, as uh, players, some players in the Big Ten have chosen to do uh, after that league made its decision, well, then it's almost like Christmas morning all over again. So you could be in for more good news there in terms of personnel. And lastly, uh, I said we were going to wrap the podcast up on the personnel. Uh, we'll get into this more in the days and weeks ahead on basketball, but again, didn't want to completely omit it, and that is that uh, the Pac-12, in the course of its dis- discussions and decision, uh, announcing that it will also start the basketball season on November the 25th. Again, that is going to be the same day as the rest of the country. Now, what does the schedule look like? Is the 20-game conference schedule still the plan? Will they bump it down to 18 again, which it had been? This was the year that it was going to expand to 20, and they were going to play two games in early December, if you can recall. Uh, obviously, all things are fluid. There was a conference call with Larry Scott and some of the uh, men's basketball coaches in particular after the media conference call that was had yesterday. So some of these things are being hashed out and worked out in real time uh, and still have to be decided. On one hand, again, all understandable. On the other hand, we're hearing about how there's discussions being had, uh, whether it be for Las Vegas or Indianapolis specifically and other neutral site events and venues uh, for various different uh, what they call multi-team events, you know, tournaments, in-season tournaments. Um, that's a part of non-conference play, and that's a recommendation by the NCAA and the uh, Men's Basketball uh, Oversight Committee. We haven't heard any of the Pac-12 teams absolutely uh, committed and nailed down to play in any of those uh, just yet because until yesterday we hadn't had a formal decision by the Pac-12 to start on November the 25th. Uh, which was a decision for the NCAA the week earlier. So all things that we'll get into more in the days and weeks ahead, as I say, on the basketball front, but didn't want to leave that out entirely. But on the football front, uh, it is, again, it's good news as a whole. I understand for some it is still very frustrating that it has taken as long as it did and that the Pac-12 is on paper going to be playing less games than the other Power 5 conferences. But we are where we are. And Pac-12 football is back. Oregon will be playing this fall. The season will start on November the 6th or 7th. We'll find out exactly the full schedule configuration, times, uh, dates, and the opponent rotation, etc. in the days ahead. And we'll be able to do a podcast on a at least weekly basis, if not multiple times a week basis, uh, and have lots to talk about. It's something that we were certainly planning to do uh, with sports on a regular calendar, but then we got thrown quite the uh, wrench here over the last six months, as we all know. Well, the plan is certainly to have uh, a steady stream of podcast content and uh, written content and everything else back to usual uh, for OregonLive.com. So for this edition of the podcast, I'm James Crepia, signing off.